Joy is the foundation. This is the thing in coaching that I think coaches that are well-meaning coaches don't quite realize like that one thing you said to them, that seventh grader that you moved from A team to B team without saying anything to him, that shapes him to believe now that he has no control over you know, his own development, no matter how hard he works, because you didn't tell him why, now he's shaped to believe he just doesn't have control, that his work doesn't matter. Hi, I'm Brianna Garza, and you're entering a world gone good. Well, hello, my name is Steve, and we are back together again, celebrating everyday good people, making good happen each and every day. That's what we do here on World Gone Good. If you like the good we got going on, please, yes, share us with your friends and spread our show around. You can subscribe where you're listening right now. You can rate and review us. We love your good feedback. And if you're craving even more good in your life and who of us isn't right now, check out our new Patreon page at patreon.com slash worldgonegood for all kinds of bonus good that you can't find anywhere else. Patreon.com slash worldgonegood. Okay, so step back with me a few years, would you? More than a few, I guess. All the way back to the glorious 1980s, your good pal Steve here was a junior camp counselor at Harbor Hills Day Camp, which was basically a breeding ground for Lyme disease. Uh, Please, no one from Harbor Hills Day Camp sue me for that statement. This is just a fond memory I'm sharing. Uh, I was partially in charge of a group of third grade boys, and it was really fun. And every day, one of the activities was swim time in the pools uh, at the camp. I had one little kid named Zev. I can still see him. He was smaller than all the other boys in the group, like half their size, but the same age. And he was terrified of the water. All the kids are having the time of their lives, and there Zev would sit off by himself, wrapped in a towel, just watching. I would go and sit by him and say, look at how much fun everybody's having, and he would not budge. Finally, one day, after a ton of encouragement, I got him to at least come with me, hold my hand, (laughs) and I remember this, I got him to step into the pool and just stand on the very top stair, basically just his feet in. And that's when he looked up at me and said, I don't know how to swim, which of course I knew that. And I said, well, Zev, I'll teach you. Over the rest of the summer, I slowly taught Zev how to swim, starting with the basics of trusting me and trusting he wouldn't drown with me around or anyone else there as everyone's watching. By the end of the summer, this kid was cannonballing himself in with all the others right into the deep end. On the last night of camp, the parents were invited to come for a barbecue and meet us all. Zev's parents came up to me and asked, are you Steve? And I said, yes. And his mother burst into tears and like grabs onto me and hugs me. His dad said, he's not afraid of the water anymore because of you. His mom said to me, you're all he talks about. He says you're his best friend. Now, I was 15 when this all took place, okay? 
And you're probably wondering, why am I sharing this story right now, all these years later, these many, many, let's not even count how many, many years later. It's because just a few weeks ago, I was flicking through Instagram and I saw this amazing basketball coach do something similar with a young player struggling to make a shot. She showed him how to prioritize the enjoyment and the growth over the need to win and be the best. And I had a deja vu moment watching her do it. Brianna Garza is building better playmakers, not players, playmakers and people through her company, Shooters Shoot. This is her good story. Well, this is one of those lovely times when I go on the internets and I'm randomly looking at things and a video pops up and I discover a unique good person and you are that good person, Brianna. I did a little research on you. I think I told you before we started and this is where I want to start. You know where I'm going to start. In your heart, you label yourself a graceful disruptor. Explain. Graceful disruptor. Um, it's funny. I take a lot of my um, inspiration as a woman in business from Dolly Parton, actually. And um, the the grace at which she carries herself, no matter the situation or, you know, she kind of purposefully makes herself the the butt of jokes before anybody else can get to it. The way she's handled some of the hardships and some of the, the ways she's been wronged in her life with grace and with love and forgiveness um, is where the graceful part comes from. And uh, being a disruptor, I, I think, uh, one, being a woman in the space of player development is disruptive just by nature. And two, yeah, I'm trying to do this coaching thing significantly different than anybody else is doing it right now. It's interesting that you choose Dolly because Dolly is an entertainer. Dolly's a singer, an actress, an advocate, an activist, an author. Uh, That's more in the arts world, which is a little surprising that that's, that's who you connect to. Yeah. Yeah. I am. My, I've got a, my minor degree in college was in music and I, uh, yeah, that's sort of the connection there. And I, yeah, I, I think when somebody can take one really meaty idea and spread it across all kinds of different categories, the sciences, the arts, the, you know, the communication, the music, all of that, I think can be, they're all, there are universal truths in all of those things, you know? And so Dolly is, yeah, the the pinnacle of of having all of those things and not letting them change the nature um, and the foundation of who she is. And you're a graceful disruptor, so you can scream at me, Steve, I'm disrupting you. Don't put me in a box. Yes. <laughs> you're all about it. Now, I'm going to let you explain to everybody what it is you do, because I have a lot of questions, but you tell everybody is, what is it that you do? I'm a shooting coach uh, for basketball. I've worked through, I've worked with anybody from, you know, tiny tots all the way up through WNBA and NBA players. And I'm a mentor. Uh, I run my business uh, based on the 
you know, the tagline of shot development and thought development, because you can't really have one without the other. I, uh, I travel the, the country and I travel the world teaching people how to shoot and how to believe in themselves through the medium. And yeah, just uh, trying to live out the, uh, the curriculum that I teach from. It's really hard to teach something you're not living yourself. And so just trying to model that and, and show whomever in whatever walk of life that, you know, it all just comes down to choices and um, being brave enough to, to pull the trigger and, and to bet on yourself rather than letting circumstances define, define your choices for you. Your company is Shooter Shoot. <laughs> yep, Shooter Shoot LLC. That's the I'm the owner founder, and then I'm also the COO for a company in Austin called Strata Athletics. It's a nonprofit that uh, works with the fourth through eighth grade youth players that are trying to. We're trying to disrupt uh, the culture that is AAU basketball right now, which tends to be quite toxic. Let's start with Shooter Shoot. You exist to bring out the possibilities in every girl and woman through the power of sport. What was it like for you growing up playing sports? My dad was a coach um, and I grew up in Texas. He was a football coach. So I I lived on the football field and in the gym and um, I grew up just around it my whole life. And um, I was always, yeah, basketball was my first love. It was something that constantly challenged me. Even now I'm still getting better at basketball. It's, it's one of those things that, um, is like a forever project. And I, um, played in high school. I I played in college, had, had a lot of success at both of those levels. And then, uh, after college, I, I really felt like I left it all on the floor. Um, went into the, uh, into the grad school world, got a degree in sport and performance psychology. And my, uh, my emphasis was in skill acquisition. Um, then took a, took a gap year or two and then got a, a second master's in instructional design and human performance technology. And I say all of that, um, to say it's like, I accidentally became a shoot, like had the background to become a, sh- a shooting coach. Um, like that, this wasn't ever the intention, but um, I stayed in the player development world. Um, I coached in college for a little while, and then I just found this niche of shooting. I was so drawn to it because it's so closely tied with athlete confidence and self belief, and and you know all these things that I'm very passionate about. And it's just fascinating, just fascinating studying the mechanics and and how to teach uh, specifically, how to create psychological safety in those spaces where you know shooters confidence is very much based upon their performance as, you know, if their shots go in or not. So navigating all of that, um, it just never gets boring. Communication plays key here, right? Yeah, totally. And you're a woman. I am. How do, how, (laughs) correct. (laughs) How do, how do, these questions are going great. How does and did the development and the process go along for you working with other men I'm working with other women, women, was there a difference in the language and the communication? Was there any? Yeah. I mean, there's definitely, there's definitely a difference. Um, it's funny as athletes get older, like when they get to, um, like later college years and, and professional athletes, um, the language and, and the tone doesn't change much, but, uh, when I'm coaching, you know, youth through high school, early college aged athletes, 
um, they're still in their developmental years, right? So the ongoing joke, or uh, not necessarily a joke, I guess it's it, there's there's definitely some truth to it, is that um, when you're coaching, you know, males versus females, um, boys, boys who are really good at something tend to think they're great at it. Whereas girls who are really great at something just tend to think they're good at it. Interesting. Yeah. Like learning how to navigate that space, um, how to build credibility as a five, six white woman <laughs> with a, you know, a five star high school prospect that's, you know, dunking from the free throw line. Like, what is this girl going to teach me? Um, it's it's a interesting to like gain credibility softly with them. Um, whereas girls typically just, you know, they just lean in right away. That's very interesting. Is there a generational thing that goes on too when you're working with different, you know, Gen X, Gen Z, boomers, whoever you're working with? Is there a, a change there in how they're receptive to you? I don't think it's necessarily a generational thing and more of just like awkward teenager thing. Um, uh, I think every teenager of every generation was was the same kind of awkward. Um, there's definitely different challenges. Um, you know, the young people I work with now, the dynamic that they've grown up in is just different than the ones we did with social media and, of course, COVID and all of the things that they're up against. They've, I'm finding that youth, as of late, are there's an epidemic of, of athletes equating their worth to their wins. And that's exactly the culture that, you know, my company and that shooter shoot is trying to flip. So let's talk about that for a minute, because your company is a clothing and lifestyle brand. Give everybody a little tutorial on what that means and how they tie together and what each mission is. So there's a couple of different buckets. Um, so the clothing brand is definitely a piece of it. That's where I got the whole brand started. Um, but our meat and potatoes of what Shooter Shoot is, is, is it's a mentorship program. Um, it just so happens that all of our mentors are experts shooting coaches as well. And so the, the clothing brand is awesome. And it's something that I, I'm going to continue to build and to grow. But it's not the it's not the main thing. The main thing is instilling in people in, in young people and in, in all people, uh, the audacity of self belief. What was your self belief as a kid? Oh, uh, it's a good question. You know, I, I think we don't really know where resilience comes from. I, we've studied it. You know, it's like there's been tons of, of work on, you know, how to build it, or how to develop resilience and all of that. But some people, like some people who can just sing be, like by being born um, or some people are just really good at, at, you know, really athletic or really talented at, at this, that and the other. Um, I think I just got lucky um, and that I was I was just born with a certain amount of resilience. Um and so I think in understanding that about myself, I, like one of the foundation, like the foundational philosophies of, of who I who I am, like how I live my life is understanding that we're only here for other people. Um, because I think about I think about like I imagine sometimes like a world like where I'm the only one in it. And it's like, what would you even do with your time? <laughs> you know, right. So, right. Um, yeah, understanding that it's like, how do I take this gift that was given to me and like 
teach people, inspire people, you know, to push forward through the hard stuff, because really that's what a lot of life is, is the, the peaks and the valleys and understanding that you have to be okay with, with not being great at something on the way to being great at something and bottling that up all within the medium of shooting. I think so much of life comes down to the journey and then the destination and then understanding that it's always going to be a journey, even when you get there. There's like, you know, I, I am a clod. I'll be the first one to tell you. I, I have that thing where um, I am way more balanced on my left leg, but my right arm is my balance. So I've got that crisscross kind of thing going on. So anytime on the gym, like I'm at the gym, if I have to do something upper body wise, we all know I'm going to have no problem. I'm not going to like hit anybody with the weight on the right side, but watch out on my left, <laughs> but reverse on the lower body part. <laughs> yeah. So it's that weird, you know, it's that weird thing that, you know, we go to the gym with this expectation of like, I'm going to go, I'm going to work out. I'm going to just get this perfect body. I'm going to get in shape. But that journey never ends. I've been doing it since I was 19 and I'm 53 years old. And I'm still looking in the mirror and I'm still striving to keep that guy going and not fall over. You know what I mean? Like that's what I'm talking about, the crisscross on my body. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so I think that's a lot of it. The journey, right? Yeah. Yeah. Well, one, let me say, I don't know what a 53-year-old voice is supposed to sound like, but I, I did. When you said you're 53, that just, you know, floored me I'm a incredibly bit. immature. Um, I'm incredibly immature. Yeah. Keep going. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, I do know what you mean. I do know that, uh, like, we are socially, especially athletes, are socially shaped to be very goal-driven. Right. I've, I've spoken with, like, Emmy winners, with WNBA champions, with uh, master teachers, with world-renowned surgeons, and I've just, you know, gotten into conversations with them about their journey and about all the things that they've accomplished. And um, really, I got to sit back and and listen to to an Emmy winner and a WNBA champion have a conversation about being at the peak of their of their performance, the peak of of being the best at their craft, and then winning the award or winning the championship and holding the trophy. And the first thing they felt was sadness because it's like, what's next? And I took that and like sat with that and reframed from that. And like, yes, there, I think there are things that can absolutely drive us forward. You should want to win the championship. You should want to be the best at what you do. But like, I think if you are purpose driven, then those things happen as a byproduct of the work, of the joy, of the, uh, of the, <laughs> the, the compassion of the reps. Right. And so that's like that's where I stand on that is is yeah purpose driven um a purpose driven life seems to be one that's um less likely to run out of steam so here's an expectation that you may have had as a kid. did you yourself want to be a professional basketball player w m b a I actually think I was always quite realistic with myself and that I'm five six and I can't really move sideways at all. Um, or like jump or anything. So, so, um, I like, you know, I definitely, I want, did want to go division one. Like every, every basketball player grows up wanting to, wanting to go play division one basketball. Um, and so, yeah, I like worked towards that really hard. Um, and then, yeah, my senior year, I kind of woke up one day and realized like, I can't guard anybody. Like I can't, I can't, I can't move. Um, 
And so, yeah, like I definitely had those goals. But again, like it was just about becoming rather than getting somewhere. That's a very powerful statement and goes back to what you just were talking about. Mm. Because I think there is an expectation that sometimes parents have that they put on their kids. And sometimes we have an and ourselves to prove ourselves to our parents and or the world and or ourselves. Totally. And I think so much of it is just what you said is living in that moment. And I know exactly what you're talking about because I know Emmy winners who are, <laughs> I say this kindly, miserable. And you're like, how can you be miserable? You got, yeah. you got the goal. You, you right. got to the highest place. But there's so much in the focus of what do I do next? What happens next? And or does this fulfill the expectation that I had leading up to it? Somebody just told me, it shared a story with me about J. Cole um, and the same thing. Like J. Cole was like, I'm going to, you know, be the best in my craft. I'm going to win the Grammy and I'm going to, you know, get become a millionaire. And once I get there, I'm going to reach this emotional like flatline, and by flatline, I mean like stability. Like now emotionally, I'm going to feel consistent. I'm going to feel constantly like, okay, we're here. But that's just not the nature of life. You know, the nature of life, you know, is the peaks and the valleys. And so when we, when we create goal-driven, goal-driven societies, goal-driven, you know, people, then like it's, it's, almost like setting them up for potentially living unfulfilled. And now I feel, you know, since I, I've kind of very consciously made this reframe, it's like, well, you know what? Okay, what's next? <laughs> you know, like rather than, you know, the flip side of like, what now? Because time is so freaky because we are always right here. So good. We're always in this split second of a now. Hmm. And then everything else is a memory or a future thing that's beyond our control. It's much like, <laughs> I said this on here too, when we start thinking about blinking and or breathing, then you're like, oh God, I got to take a breath in. I got to blink right now. I got to breathe out. No, you just have to be present. You just have to be in that moment. Speaking of which, let's talk about Strata Athletics for a second here. I loved this statement that I read on here. You're serving fourth to eighth graders in the ATX. That is Austin, Texas. Austin, Texas. And you're building better playmakers and better people. But what I love so much is that you said better playmakers, not better players. Playmakers is speaking to living not for self, but for others. I just interviewed an athlete this morning for a retreat uh, that I'm running in, in Scottsdale. I'm from Scottsdale. Oh, uh, are you? <laughs> Um, <laughs> yes. Wonderful. Wonderful. Okay. I'll be at the retreat. Just tell me what time. Go ahead. Yeah, I got you. I got you. So running this retreat um, in Scottsdale. So um, the difference between a player and a playmaker is like when I'm in my, my player form, um, then when I miss shots, like I am now not going to take another shot because I don't want to make another mistake or because that knocks my confidence or whatever it is. and. Uh, something I explained to this, this player is like, well, you're a point guard. So you're the leader on the team. And so if you stop taking shots because you're upset with yourself or because you're, um, 
you know, you're fearing making another mistake, then you're no longer making this game about anybody else but you. Right. And that's the difference, I think, between being a player and a playmaker is can you, despite your own hardships, still make plays for others? Now, I'm going to read right from the website. According to the National Alliance for Youth Sports, 70% of kids in the U.S. stop playing organized sports by the age of 13 because, quote, it's not fun anymore. I will have a lot to say about this, but I want you to talk about it first. Why is the fun important? Joy is the foundation. <laughs> Joy is the foundation. It's it's universal. It's the thing we all seek to live by. and it's become in basketball, you know, just so much different and so far from the act of play. Um, one of my favorite studies in psychology was the a, a nun study. I don't know if you're familiar with this, um, but we live as humans. We we try to like increase our longevity. We want to live for a long time, just by nature, and so. Um, they found that in this nunnery, I don't know if that's what it's if that's what it's called actually, but we'll sure. call it a, we'll call it a nunnery. <laughs> um, that it was wild that these these nuns that all lived together, they all lived significantly longer and had had no cases of Alzheimer's or dementia compared to um, elderly people living in a regular you know retirement home or nursing home. And so psychologists were baffled by this and they went and studied and found that the, the three variables that were um, consistent among these nuns and other um, long living, healthy people were um, three things. One, close social circles. Um, two, keeping their minds engaged um, on a daily basis, doing things that challenged their minds. And three, engaging in play for the sake of play. So that is joy. Like that is, is fun. Like we're, t- we're trying, the purpose of sport is to teach play in a way that shapes us to be better people uh, on top of that, how to, how to communicate, how to interact with other people and, and like build things together. And so we've gotten so far away from that when really at the foundations of even longevity and life um, is play. And so, you know, Strata, our mission is to, um, bring that back, bring, bring that element of, of play and of love and of life back to basketball. Um, and we're using, you know, technology, um, in a way to measure intangibles, how athletes respond to mistakes when they make a mistake, um, do they animate and speed up their first two steps or do they droop and walk or do they, what does their eye contact look like from week one to week eight? How do we help shape them in that way? That's going to build more than um, you know, build more than just a basketball skill. And in, in that, athletes feel like they're not just growing as basketball players, but as people. And that's fun. Okay, first of all, let's go back to nunnery for a minute. The only fun nun that I've ever known was the Flying Nun. It was Sally Field. It was a show during the 1960s. And I used to watch it on reruns when I'd pretend to be sick and stay home. And my mom's probably gonna be listening to this. And she's rolling her eyes because she knows how many times I pretended to be sick. But that's beyond the point. Um, but here's the other thing I want to say. It comes out of putting enjoyment first, right? And that's enjoyment. If you're having – I talk about this on the show. I've talked about it so many times. I I stay until something's not fun anymore 
And that is regarding friends. That's regarding relationships that I'm in. That's regarding um, work environments. That's regarding team social things. It's harder with family. I said this so many times because we're stuck with family. You know, I got to be nice to my brother because I'm going to need a kidney from him in no time. We all know that, right? But <laughs> love you if you're listening. But um, but that's the key is when something stops being fun, um, we we just naturally – it becomes work. And that's that's right. the thing that's so key is like we have this, uh, this idea that childhood's supposed to be fun. 18 years old, you're out of the house, go get a job, start a life, you know, make the money. How are you going to pay the bills? All the work things. And that's the shift that I see in so many people where I'm like, when were you fun? Can you get back to that fun? What is fun to you? Yeah. I mean, in, in the basketball, you know, sense of that is like, it doesn't mean the work goes away, that it's all, you know, you know, everybody's just hanging out and having fun and not like having meaningful experiences. I think of Steph Curry. Steph Curry is known to be one of the hardest working um, players. He lifts every day, shoots hundreds and hundreds, thousands sometimes of shots every day. Um, He's one of the hardest workers in the NBA. And he also, when you watch him play, he has the most fun of just about any, any athlete. And it's like, that is the way that is the balance between, you know, making the sacrifices and not just going on the hedonic treadmill of, of, you know, immediate gratification, working for something meaningful, but also finding purpose inside of that being purpose driven. Um, yeah, it becomes a, it ain't a bad life. A question I ask a lot of my guests is this, if you could go back to, I don't know, 10-year-old, 12-year-old Brianna, what would you say to her now? Oh, that's a good one. Um, Keep going. You know, you're doing great. Uh, I didn't have a lot of, I I had some, but I didn't have a lot of of very healthy relationships with coaches. I grew up in in an era, as I'm sure you did too, of um, like where fear-based coaching and and very you know like low-key like emotional abusive coaching was the norm and was the way and you know that brought on a lot of self-doubt a lot of imposter syndrome a lot of you know why can't I do this right um and if I could you know talk to me back then just I would say keep it moving you're on your way so interesting you say that about coaches. My first little league team I was on, the New Jersey Bank team. That was the name of our team back in New Jersey when I lived there. I was probably like eight or nine years old. And first of all, our 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 I almost called them costumes. Jesus Christmas. I call it uniforms. Our uniforms were black. And everybody was the middle of the damn summer. Okay. It's May and June. And it yeah. don't put little kids in black. It's too hot. That's one. Two was my dad was like an assistant coach with another dad, and there was this head coach who was one of those bully dads, and he made his son be the pitcher, and I wanted to be the pitcher, and I practiced with my dad. I practiced with my dad, and I was getting like, I can do this. I'm good. I was getting the confidence. I thought I could do it. No, no, no. This little kid's was going to be the pitcher. This kid did not want to be the pitcher. He would sob crying, please, no, I don't want to. Like, I, and we all felt for him because they this man sucked the fun out of our experience but our very first game 
he made every one of us, he gathered all of us around, we're all going to go up to bat, everyone bunt. And we all went, what? What? So just picture like 15 little boys, everyone bunt. And I, I wish there were some little girls on my team. There weren't. There were, yeah. We were all boys. There were other teams that had some girls on them, but yeah, we, we were all boys. What? Why? What? Even my dad, the look on my dad's face was like, what? So the first kid gets up and bunts, right? Takes him surprise. Of course, he gets to first base. Second kid bunts, and then they all realize we're all bunting. It was just a sh- like a complete <laughs> blowout, shutdown, shutout game because we all had to bunt. We begged him, but none of us, we were eight years old. We weren't going to go up against this adult. No, no, bunt, bunt, bunt. But I, we were like in the fourth inning, fifth inning, still bunting. And they all thought there was something wrong with us. Wow. But after that game, we all went and like I got in the car with a whole group of friends. My dad carpooled, dropped all the kids off, right? And me and my dad are driving home. I just look at my dad. I go, what happened? And my dad said, I don't know. And I said, he sucked all the fun. Yeah. Like we were miserable. His kid's crying. He don't want to be the pitcher. And we all had to bunt. We lost the game. And I look back at it and go, what why did you find it necessary to pull the fun out? Because that's the whole point of life. That's the whole point of what you're doing. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, like when I work with coaches and I work with athletes who have who have coaches that, um, you know, are emotionally abusive or that, you know, do suck the fun out of things. It's like, that's how they were likely coached. Um, that's how, you know, that behavior is, is a trickle down, um, impact of, of, you know, they were likely yelled at as, as kids. That's just the only way they know how to, to coach because, you know, look at, look at them. I turned out okay. Like you should be able to handle this kind of thing. And, um, you know, so it's like, yeah, giving, giving people truth, um, like with love, giving coaches truth with love in that way can be can be really hard to do. And then like, yeah, expecting an eight year old to want to keep playing baseball if you're bunting the whole time. Like, yeah, that, that it, it kind of like what I spoke to you earlier, like that was no longer about you guys. Like that was about him. Right. And it ain't about us anymore. I was just, like we're not wearing the jersey anymore. Like we had our time and now like it ain't about me. It's it's about you and your development as a human as a, and as a player. And, you know, are you happy? And even if this is really hard right now, does this make you happy? And if so, let's keep it moving. If not, you don't get to quit when it's hard, but you can quit when, you know, it's not a low and you're deciding this is still not for me. When you're working with younger people, do you see yourself in them sometimes? Yeah, absolutely. All the time. All the time. I, you know, and with, with the amount of um, coaching issues or, or, you know, emotional abuse or fear-induced coaching that I received, I think that's part of why, like, my philosophy of coaching is based in, in this um, and, you know, the happiness advantage in, in psychological safety and giving them truth with love and, and never making them feel small because that was my experience that um, it is you know, my mission to never be on the other end of that, um, for an athlete to be the, to be the coach that believes in them through, you know, where they're going to be or believes in them to where they're going to be and not just where they are now. Um, not making them 
not embarrassing them or humiliating them in front of in front of teammates or um, you know making them think that they're never going to play at the next level. You know, it's funny. I, I read. I, I don't personally want children, but I read parenting books uh, because I work with so many kids, and that feels important. You know, to to understand a little bit deeper. And one of my uh, one of the books I read, um, the author's name, I just um, she it just left me, but. She's like a neuroscientist, like an expert on developmental brains. Um, and she had this one TED Talk that absolutely floored me. And it's something that I carry with me all of the time and that I share with parents when I have parent meetings before I run any, any sort of camp or event. And it's that parents have this idea that their choices have a much larger impact on who their child becomes than it actually does. For some reason, by the nature of being a parent of a child, like the natural resistance that we have um, to mom and dad, for whatever reason that happens, it does. And so parent choices, no matter how good or how how hard they try, they don't actually have nearly as much of an impact on who their child becomes um, as they think they do. But do you know whose choices do have an impact? A drastic one. Mentors. But isn't that interesting too, what you said, because I always find it so fascinating that even some of the parents I know of, you know, few years, many years of you know, older kids, I don't have kids either, but it's almost like they forgot when they were a child and their yeah. relationship with their parent. And like almost sometimes in certain people, not all, that, that mm-hmm. step came out. And suddenly they're just like, I'm a parent now. Right. Just like we said, like, I have a job now. <laughs> like, I'm supposed to be this thing now. And it's hard, like, because parents, like, obviously they care. This is their most prized possession that they're, that we're, that we're talking about. And so, it, like, all of these, these things come from a place of care. But in, in learning that, it's like it, it shifted yet again. This thing I think I already knew as a, as a truth somehow. But now it's like, okay me as their coach who, who, or their mentor who sees them in their most vulnerable spaces, um, just as much as their parents, sometimes more than their parents, like at the college level, you're spending more time with your coach than you are with your parents. And like the impact that that relationship, that, that your choices and decisions and behavior have on how young people are shaped is like, just like baffling that, yeah, that we don't talk about that more. Um, and parents are put in such a difficult position because they they want their kid to play the sport that they love, right? But then you end up trusting them with this person that may or may not put the same amount of gravity upon that relationship and development. And that's it's just so important. And this is, again, this is the culture that I'm trying to flip. This is the thing in coaching that I think coaches that are well-meaning coaches don't quite realize, like, that one thing you said to them, that seventh grader that you moved from A team to B team without saying anything to him, that shapes him to believe now that he has no control over, you know, his own development, no matter how hard he works, because you didn't tell him why. Now he's shaped to believe he just doesn't have control, that his work doesn't matter. And yeah, so there's this like those those deeper like pieces of of why you know I created Shooter Shoot was yes to do expert shot training and and all of that, but really it's to to 
you know, be this, this voice that athletes that I didn't have. Um, and not because my parents didn't back me up. My parents were fantastic. My mom drove 12 hours one way during college to come watch me play. And I had the best support system in the world. And, and I still had these experiences that shaped me, um, from coaches that, uh, yeah, were just shaped by their own. Um, we kind of went on a tangent there, but (laughs) that's, um, no, I loved it. No, I loved it. And then, and again, don't don't you? Or I'm gonna make you sound like a million. You already sound like nine hundred ninety nine thousand bucks. I'm gonna make you sound like a million bucks. <laughs> I appreciate it. Um, tell my audience, <laughs> of course, no, no, I'm loving this because this is what we talk about here all the time, and it's just we talk about it with we talk about it with uh, you know animal farms and rescue dog places and vegan chefs, and we talk about it with best selling authors. It's just it's the same. It's the same everywhere. It's about keeping the fun, finding your passion, and communicating that and bringing that good out into the world. And it doesn't always have to be, oh, I'm going to go rescue 100 cows from slaughter and find a farm. It can be being that advocate for a kid or an adult and listening and being there on the court, you know what I mean? And just hearing them and responding back to them and connecting. Totally. And that's something really, really good. Mm. Where do people find Shooter Shoot and where do people find Strata Athletics? Two different places. Tell them where to go to find out more information. Shooter Shoot, I'm most active on Instagram. Um, Shooters X Shoot 70. Uh, the 70 is in there because the bar we set for athletes is 70% or better. Gets you the green light from whatever type of shot that uh, you want to take. And um, Strata Athletics um, is, uh, yeah, strataathletics.com. We're Austin, Texas based and, um, yeah, trying to, uh, both in both ways with both companies that I'm involved with, uh, we're trying to flip the culture. The final two questions are questions we ask every time. Question number one, I think you already answered. You can give the same answer or you can say anything you want to say. Here it is. You're not going to be shocked. Who inspires you? Yeah. Yeah. Same answer. Same answer. Um, (laughs) Dolly Parton. I actually, anybody that comes on to, comes into the company, joins Shooter Shoot, um, they have to do two things. I send them a book called The Happiness Advantage called Sean, uh, by Sean Acor. Um, It's about how um, leaders who drive um, happiness first um, in their people or prioritize happiness first in the people that they lead. Um, those companies tend to be more successful than the ones who are, um, very production driven or performance driven. Um, and then, yeah, I have them listen to Dolly Parton's America, which is a podcast uh, put on by NPR, uh, by Jad Abimrad, who is an, a fantastic podcaster like yourself. Um, and those are the two requirements when they come on, that's part of their training. Um, so yeah, Dolly Parton's gotta be the one. And the final question isn't even a question. It is a statement to finish. You can say it anything you want to say, anything we talked about, anything that comes to your head. It's this. Tell me something good, dot, dot, dot. Whatever it is that you're trying to do, most of the hard stuff comes down to audacity. And if you can have just a little bit of the audacity of self-belief, then that can take you a very long way. Thank you, Brianna, for sharing your good. 
and for reminding us all to take our shot next time on World Gone Good. I never said, why me? I said, what's next? And I think that that is really was the key for me to be stay focused and positive. If I worry about why me, I, I'm never going to answer that question. And there's nothing I can do to change the fact that I had cancer. But I could focus in on what I could do. So what next? What can I do? At the height of the pandemic, Pip Lilly found out he had stage three cancer, like COVID wasn't enough to deal with at the time. He also had a hit musical for the love of a glove to rehearse and star in, which coincidentally turned into one of the biggest factors to keeping him going. We are chatting it up all about singing and dancing and chemo and cancer and all the good there is in simply being alive on our brand new episode coming up next week. Can't wait for you to hear it. Until then, be good. <laughs>